The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, whose dear Son went not up to joy, but first he suffered pain and entered not into glory before he was crucified. Merciful grant that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it none other than the way of life and peace through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. I want to approach this Palm Sunday, our class, by basically asking two questions. And the first question is, are we living by, or that's the second question. The first question is, are we, are we standing by, or we might say, are we standing up for the cross of Jesus? And the second question, are we living by the death of Jesus, the cross of Jesus? So I'll start with first, are we standing up for the cross of Christ? I'll never forget once an angry agnostic who happened to be a clergyman in the Episcopal Church many years ago. <clears throat> this is true. Uh, he said the whole idea of the crucifixion of Jesus as the Son of God is a, is a myth uh, about a, a God who is into child abuse. Now, notice he didn't say that the crucifixion of Christ was a myth because that's pretty, pretty much documented in history. We know Jesus of Nazareth was, was crucified. But he said this whole idea of, of Jesus Christ as the Son of God is a God myth. I think he said it was a God myth of a God who was uh, into child abuse. And I suppose that if Arius was right, then he would at least have, uh, have a, a point that had some rationale behind it, maybe. Arius was this fourth century theologian who claimed that Jesus was not co-eternal with the Father but that he was kind of second in the hierarchy of the divine, of divine ranks, that he was a, indeed, he was a kind of son uh, who, who was second in command of the, the, all the host of heaven, who was sent into human history to die this horrible, painful death for our sins. And in that sense, the story of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice uh, Isaac would be a kind of, of example. But Arius... Uh, in fact, he almost won the debate. For those of you in church history, you know this better than I. Almost won the debate, but he was ultimately declared, declared a heretic uh, at the Council of Nicaea, which was in the year 325. And out of that council, we get the Nicene Creed that we uh, usually read on Sunday mornings. So to fully understand uh, the cross, uh, the first thing we need to do is to submit to, not understand, because it's beyond human comprehension, but submit to the fact that when it comes to the persons of the Trinity, we cannot pro proclaim uh, the distinctiveness at the expense of the unity, and we cannot proclaim the unity at the expense of the, of the distinctiveness. So yes, it was God's Son, but also we've got to remember that it was God himself who hung, uh, hung on the cross. One of, one of the great dialogues that you might have with someone knocks on your door with the Latter-day Saints come knocking on your door with the Mormons knock on your door you might one of the things you might might say to them say I'll be glad to talk to you but there's one thing I want you to understand that I, this is non-negotiable in our dialogue and that is that it was God himself who hung on the cross not the second person in command it was God himself who hung on the cross 
and I think you'll see right off that will be a stumbling block before the dialogue gets, gets off the ground right there. As we say in that great, that great Good Friday hymn, there was no other good enough, this being God himself, there was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. Only he could unlock the gates of heaven and let us in. We'll be singing that on Good Friday. While the, clock, while, while the cross of Jesus, that is both in his humanity and in his, the fullness of his de, uh, deity, is the central thing in the New Testament, and as Christianity, uh, as the New Testament understands it, I even have colleagues, as I mentioned before, uh, who uh, have a problem with the necessity of the cross, with the necessity of Jesus uh, going through the sacrificial death to die for us. Uh, and essentially, people like this are saying uh, that we understand and we like the idea of grace. We're real happy to know that God uh, loves us in spite of our unworthiness, and loves us in spite of our sinfulness. That's wonderful. But why the cross? Why, why do you insist on the cross? Now, I'm not going to name names, but really, I don't probably shouldn't have any problem with it because... Uh, this particular clergyman did not did not ask for anonymity when he stood uh, before the other clergy at a recent clergy retreat. In fact, I talked about this guy at a recent sermon, so some, this may sound familiar to it. But uh, he's a very respected man in this diocese. Uh, but he uh, he took the podium uh, and began to expand expound his view that had Jesus lived to be to be 85 years old and died or 90 or 95 years old, whatever, and died a natural death, that that would not have affected one way or another our good standing uh, with God. And he said that, that what he wanted to do is take the violence out of Christianity. He wanted to take the blood out of Christianity. Uh, Christianity. Well, in light of St. Paul's reading in Philippians, uh, we would call this guy an enemy of the cross. <clears throat> Why doesn't God in his great love not just forgive us? And I said in the beginning, the first question is, uh, do you stand by the death of cross, uh, by the death of Christ? Are you ready to answer the question? Why did Jesus? Why do you guys insist that uh, that the forgiveness is hinged on, on this on this violence, on this on this sacrificial death of the cross? Are you ready to answer that question at a cocktail party? Are you ready to stand up for necessity? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I I I I I find that I get questions, theological questions at the queerest places, uh, very often at, at cocktail parties or across the street here at the food court or at the Piggly Wiggly, uh, wherever. Uh, and, but, but what I'm asking is wherever it might come up, are, are you ready to give a, it doesn't have to be perfectly sound in all of its, or it doesn't have to be uh, spit polished, but are, are you rel- ready to give uh, uh, a, a at least some intelligible answer to why why did God have to die? Why doesn't God just out of His great love forgive us? You know, we all could say why why was it that Jesus said I must go to Jerusalem to die this terrible death? You might think about that. Am I ready to to answer that question? Well, as we begin to think about the answer, let's start with. Just a little single verse in Hebrews. It kind of gives it a backdrop. Hebrews 9.22. Under the law, things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 9.22. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, if they say, well, I disagree with that, you can say, well, that's fine, as I've often said. That's good. We can agree to disagree, but you need to understand you're not disagreeing with me. This was God's idea. It goes all the way back into ancient Judaism that there was a, there was a system uh, that God said you could sacrifice a lamb depending on how grievous your sins were, pigeon, lamb, uh, uh, and... And when you laid the animal on the altar and put your hand on his head, the message is clear. My guilt is on the head of this animal. And you sacrifice. This was God's. This is God. This is built on an ancient sacrificial system which God was planning his people to understand why his son came into the world. Of course, that, that <clears throat> as, as the author of Hebrews goes on to say uh, beautifully, uh, is that that wasn't not sufficient. That was, it, it wasn't. Uh, it, you know, five minutes later, you needed another lamb. It was ongoing. Uh, and, and not only that, the lamb didn't know what it was doing. That to have a full, perfect, sufficient sacrifice and oblation for the sin of the whole world, we need an animal, which the animal couldn't, to, of his own volition, uh, uh, take, take the altar. So that's the first thing to understand is that's the backdrop. He, he, Hebrews 9:22. Without the shedding of blood, blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is God's idea. And what we see in the cross is that God, is that God uh, hates sin. That's the first thing we see in the cross. He can't tolerate it. He, he cannot compromise it with it. He must punish sin. Romans 1.18. <clears throat> the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness <clears throat> and wickedness of men. The wrath of God. We don't like to talk about it. <clears throat> but God's wrath against sin uh, is a part of the New Testament revelation. We need to bear in mind that God is holy, 100% holiness beyond our ability to even imagine such a thing. One day we will, but we can't imagine how holy God is because we are sinful. And we, we can't imagine how sinful we are, are either. And I am <clears throat> personally sick to death of people talking about the inherent goodness of men and women. No, we aren't. That, you know, <clears throat> I'm not saying that we're all bad all the time, but I am saying that we are inherently... Jesus said no one is good but God. And so there again, you're not taking issue with me. You're taking issue with Jesus. Uh, we are flawed. Now, we may be good by our standards, but our standards are simply pathetic. And, and, and that, may, that may sound like a misanthrope, a uh, misanthropist, uh, but... Uh, which is someone who just dislikes mankind. But Jesus said it, and there's no one that loved the human race more than Jesus Christ did it. But he understood the situation we were in. So we can talk about God's holiness, but we can't imagine it. And in all of God's holiness, he made it so clear that he will not, he cannot tolerate unholiness. He made it clear from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3. So here are the rules. If you abide by them, we're okay. And if you don't, uh, it's, uh, there's going to be a consequence. And just because it feels good doesn't mean you can do it. What we do behind closed doors, it does matter. It matters to God. He, sits, he sets the standards. Uh, and if you don't comply, then there is uh, a cost. And one of the primary attributes of God, one of the many attributes of God, but one of the primary attributes of God is his immutability. Immutability. Uh, he does not change his mind. He, we will not get away with sin. He must punish sin. And, and there is more sin 
than we can possibly uh, imagine. Uh, one of the things that we'll see when we are made like him is the extent of God's holiness and the extent of our unholiness. So that's one thing that you see taking place on the cross is God's wrath, is God's wrath and God's action against sin. Now, on the other hand, uh, while, while God is more holy uh, than we can possibly imagine and God's wrath against sin is more than we can possibly even begin to imagine, we also cannot imagine the amount of God's love and the amount of, of love there is in God's heart for us. I heard a mother tell a child uh, just uh, this morning that how much said, you know, Mama loves you and God loves you too, as they were going off to Sunday school, and God loves you too. That is such an understatement that, that, it's, uh, that, that it's, it's, it's just worthy. It's just, it, 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 I don't know why, it just struck me this morning of what an, uh, I, Mama loves you and God loves you too. That, that is such an understatement. God, God loves that child infinitely more than even, even that child's mother does. He wants to have mercy. God wants to have mercy, but not at the expense of his justice because, you know, they are both attributes, and he's, he, he's not going to change his mind. He wants to have mercy, and he wants to have grace. You know, there's that distinction between mercy and grace that we talked about before. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And so God, in all of his mercy, does not want to give us what we do deserve, and he also wants to give us grace and give us what we don't deserve. That is, what we do deserve is punishment, uh, and what we don't deserve is inheritance into his kingdom to be made children of God. So all that comes together. But what I'm just asking you to see when you get asked this question at the Piggly Wiggly Meat Department or wherever it is, just to see how, on one hand, the immutable justice of God and the unbounding mercy and grace of God come together on the cross. As Paul said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. The Jews couldn't, it didn't make any sense. And folly to the Gentiles. It was folly to the Gentiles. It was foolishness to the Gentiles. But the cross of all the places in the world, in the universe, is where the justice of God and the love and the mercy of grace of God can be most plainly seen. And I know you know this, and I know we talk about it too much. It's not a thing. I guarantee you, not a soul in here. You haven't heard this before, but, you know, we just can't talk about it too much because when we assume it and, and we put it in the back, we tend to forget it, and the next thing you know, you've got clergymen teaching it, clergymen about whom Paul would call an enemy to the cross. But here's the bottom line. Is it is simply untrue to the gospel to proclaim that God loves the world or even that forgiveness is available uh, without the substitutionary death of the Son of God. The cross is an indispensable element of the New Testament. There's no second, there's no third, there's no any aspect of his life which should be understood independently or set side by side with his death. Neither the Sermon of the Mount which is probably the greatest ethical discourse, without any doubt, the greatest ethical discourse ever delivered, nor his miracles, which are unparalleled in history, or his kindness, which is unparalleled, or his faithfulness, which is unparalleled, or anything else 
can be understood completely unless you understand the cross. Everything shines in light of what happened on Good Friday. And not one single passage in the gospel, not even, as Luther said, not, not one verse. He said, nay, not one pericope. No, not one chapter, not one gospel is intelligible without seeing it in the light of the past. Is, is ultimately unintelligible apart from understanding his death and what accomplished on his death. And it, because it is simply and is precisely and is specifically because of his death that I return to the love of God and become a child of God and live a life of perfect freedom. And so, are you standing up for the death of Jesus? Do you understand why he had to die? If you didn't, then I just beg you to dig deeper and try to understand it. Because if you don't get that, you don't get Christianity. Pure and simple. you got to get it. Why he had to die. One more time. Under the law, it's a direct quote about, uh, uh, direct quote, under the law, Things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. <clears throat> now, the second question is, are you living by the death of Christ? Does it really affect your life and the way you think and the way you live? Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Are you living by the death of Christ? And I have to ask myself, this question over and over and over again because I find myself backsliding. I find myself not living by the death of Christ. What does it mean to live by the death of Christ? Well, you can look at it two ways. The first way you can look at it is eternally. There's a picture that I got. We mentioned St. Helena's in, in the sermon today. But in that old graveyard, which the uh, first burial there was 1720-something, quite an, quite an interesting burial graveyard there. But uh, but here's a picture uh, of uh, of uh, one of the tombstones. I don't know who he, nobody knows who this is. Erected by his parents to the memory of their infant son, William E. Trimble, who died July 1859, aged three months. He died for Adam's sin. He lives. Because Jesus died. So, there's a sense of, are you living by the death of Christ? Eternally, yes, we will all live by the death of Christ. But how about in this transitory life? Are we living by the death of Christ? Is the death of Christ reflected in the way you think and live? See, part of the problem about the cross in, in our day and time, it, it tends to be sentimentalized as Jesus is often uh, spoken as the one who identifies, you know, he died so that he could identify, so we could all know that God identifies with us in our suffering. You've heard that. And there's a point that that's the truth. But if that's the primary reason, then the cross results in blatant and suffocating sentimentality. I mean, our primary need uh, is forgiveness. That's our primary need. Our primary need is not affirmation. It's not encouragement. Now, please, I understand there's a place for affirmation. There's a place for encouragement. There's a place for support. There's, there's a place for building self-esteem. 
Uh, I'm sure it does. But our greatest need is to be made a child of God, and that involves being made clean by the blood of Jesus. And that's why he said, I must go to Jerusalem to die. In my hands, no price I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Are you living under the umbrella of that reality? Because the alternative to salvation by the crucified Savior is that we are left with our own responsibility. That's the alternative. And Scripture lives, uh, lifts up for us, um, you know, uh, uh, lots of uh, examples, but the great contrast between Judas and Peter, who, who both, they both denied Jesus. But Judas believed that, that ultimately the relationship with God is left to, your own, his, to his own responsibility. And Judas hung, him, Judas hung himself. And then you have Peter, who realized that his ultimate relationship with God uh, was not, it, it, it was based on the substitutionary death of, cross, of, of the cross. He later began to realize that. Judas hung himself uh, and Peter died. So the alternative to salvation by the crucified Savior is that sinners are left with their own responsibility. But I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make a statement that sounds foolish uh, about living by the death of Christ. It sounds a little foolish, but I'm gonna make it because I know it's true. I need to repent of my good works. Gerhard Forty, have you all read, the, read his book of being a theologian to the cross? I highly recommend it. It's, it's not lightweight reading, but if you read it slow and absorb it, it's, 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 worth, it's worth working through it. But let me just make a quote. Remember, I need to repent of my good works. Here's, why, here's where that idea comes from as he writes. Theologians of the cross, that is opposed to theologians of glory, Theology of glory, theology of, of the cross. Theologians of the cross don't worry so much about what is obviously bad in our religion, our bad works, as they do about the pretension that comes with our good works. In other words, if we're living by the death of Christ, that we should be more concerned with the pretension that comes from our good works uh, than with our bad works. Because uh, This is Luther on John 6, 5, 3. And let me just read John 6, 5, 3 to you. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. I tell you the truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And there's Luther on that passage. No matter what anyone says, this passage is clear. If Jesus had phrased this in the affirmative, whoever eats my flesh has life, then someone could have challenged it by saying, those who don't eat the flesh will be saved also. Some scoundrels also say, your teaching is correct, but ours is correct too. The law didn't mean to exclude others. And from that perspective, we could look at it from another angle. If I were to say, Wittenberg beer quenches thirst, then Annaberg beer also quenches thirst. Then I don't exclude other beers. But it would be different if I were say, if you don't drink Wittenberg beer, no other beer will quench your thirst. And that way, Christ doesn't speak in the affirmative here. He excludes everything else when he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you will have no life in you. If we despise his flesh, nothing else will prove helpful. I may call on St. Mary or St. Peter, but they can't help me. It's out of the question. In a word, all other ways are rejected. Life, grace, and salvation come to us by faith alone and not by good works. 
they become ours by trusting in the blood of Christ. But can you see what kind of freedom that Luther found in that? That that it's all, it's 100%. It's not making up the difference between the bad flaws and the good flaws. It's, it's 100%. So those two things are you standing up for the death of Christ. Don't let any well-meaning, pusillanimous students of the doctrine of love say that we don't we can get the violence out of here that we don't need we don't need the bloodshed i mean uh, jesus loves you just the way you don't don't you there the cross is the indispensable element of our christian faith and secondly the uh, are you living by the by the death of christ uh, yes you will live by the death of christ eternally but we can live also here and now by the death of christ when we see the absolute freedom uh, that comes from knowing that Jesus has paid the full price, all of it, 100% paid the price. Uh, and in my hands, no price I bring, simply to the cross I cling, is really a way of life. And it's a way of freedom. And it's a, it's a, it's a way of great joy. Because anything else, and I know it's a little bit, my works have a little bit to do with it. And I'm going to go around like here and have to take take some Xanax or whatever it takes to calm me down because I'm going to be worried about I ain't done quite enough. and uh, But I don't need to worry about that. So that's that's it. We've got a couple of minutes here for anyone who would like to ask Mark Gentiletz in the back. And you could take the questions, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> mercy and grace were? Mer- mer- yeah, mercy is is not getting what you do deserve, which is punishment. You need a whipping. But in my mercy, I'm not going to whip you. But grace is giving you something that you don't deserve. Not only not I'm going to give you a whipping, but I'm going to buy you a new car too. So mercy, no whipping. Grace, guess what else I have to give you that you don't deserve. Okay, it's... Frank, I've heard uh, that the Jewish people were just picking up pagan sacrifices and just inculcated that into their religious system. But in in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God found their covering of leaves unacceptable and made an animal, a blood sacrifice for that, for the first sin and uh, made their covering. But even in Genesis 4, where Cain and Abel, apparently the they were practicing worship from their parents were bringing an offering to God and as you kind of said uh, Cain heart wasn't in it that he didn't believe he needed to really make a sacrifice and God accepted Abel's uh, firstborn sacrifice but Cain's uh, grain sacrifice not because the grain wasn't acceptable but because his heart wasn't in it that uh, God did not accept it, which led led to more sin. But uh, I think, to me, that it's always been God's plan that, that there had to be a blood sacrifice. Yep. Question. Thank you, David. Holy Week is here. Timothy George, Fitzsimmons Allison. You want to hear them? And then, of course, Good Friday. This is the first time I've not preached Good Friday. And I wouldn't have stepped down for anybody, I think, but Fitzsimmons Allison literally wrote the book on the atonement. 
uh, and then, of course, Easter morning. Let us go forth into the world rejoicing in the power of spirit. Thanks be to God. <laughs>